that she was making stuff up. It wasn't accurate. There was no basis for what she was writing. And they also began to put out counter narratives. And that's where you get this Uncle Tom caricature from. Wow. The narratives that were written after she published this book. Right. You also had people who were doing plays that were based upon Harry Beecher Stowe's book and changing the content of the play. Um, copyright laws weren't what they are. Snow Mathers with my motherfuckers ass. You want to know how to rhyme? You better learn how to add. It's mathematics. Mighty most definitely. It's simple mathematics. Check it out. I'll revolve around science. What are we talking about here? Peace, peace, peace. It's Rakeem with another episode of Wise the Dome. Uh, today I have a very, very, very special guest, uh, the God Saladin Kuna Allah. Um, I mean, he's everything from a, a teacher, uh, activist. Um, he's dabbled in politics. You've seen him on TV. I mean, the, it, it's not really anything that the God doesn't do. Um, and so uh, we're definitely uh, very appreciative uh, for having you on, God, and, and thank you for, for coming through. Peace, G. I appreciate just having this opportunity. You know, my, uh, my old dad, he, uh, my nickname for me is, is an octopus because he said he had so many arms. Right. So many things. Right. But you, but God, it fits you, God, because ever since I've known you, I mean, as you, you're always working on a project or, or it's something new. Yeah. It's everything's always evolving. And that's, that's inspiring because, you know, it's easy to get, to a certain level in life and uh, get a little bit complacent. You know what I mean? And um, I never see that with you. And uh, like I said, that's very inspiring for those who have been able to, you know, just see you progress and try different things. And so that's real dope. And so I, I think that kind of leads me to uh, what I wanted to, uh, you know, start with. And, you know, from everybody that comes on, I like to kind of just like a like a comic book origin story somewhere, right? Like, what was it? Um, how did you, what sparked you to get knowledge yourself? And what was that process like? And, and if you can, just walk us through that song. Oh, man. Um, so I, I always got to start with my, my family dynamics. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the foundation that I was raised with, me and my siblings, um, my old earth, she was more academically or educationally orientated. So she was a social psychologist by trade. And I grew up with a DSM-4 in the household. Mm. And she would often teach me and my siblings about not only the different classifications of mental disorders, but how to identify certain things. And mm -hmm. she would also do stuff like take me and my siblings who are closest in age to like uh, large gatherings, like public spaces and say, let's go people watch. Wow. <laughs> take us there. And we would just do the knowledge on people. And she would ask us questions about uh, what we're observing. You know, are, mm -hmm. is this family leaving or are they, or are, are they uh, arriving? Um, are, is this a couple that's married or, you know, what age do you think this person is? And just teach us how to reasonably deduce the things that are in our environment. And she taught us to be very socially conscious. Mm -hmm. My old dad, he's a tradesman and he also collected African artifacts. Wow. And in collecting African artifacts, he taught a lot of us about not only our classical civilizations as first world people, but also some of our our heritage here in the wilderness of North America. Um, as a family, we would like sit down every year that Shaka Zulu came on television <laughs> and watch it as a family. Wow, right. Um, all of the different black exploitation films, <laughs> they made sure that we watched uh, the spook that sat by the door was mandatory viewing. And then also my parents were affiliated with the Black Panthers. so they had that social and cultural consciousness that set the foundation for me and my siblings. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't grow up in a very religious household. Like we never sat down and like read the Bible or read Bible stories or anything like that. Um, we grew up with a red, black and green flag in the house. Mm -hmm. So right. I was really grounded in, in consciousness and I had a very different sense of esteem Mm -hmm. perspective than some of my peers that didn't have that type of foundation growing up so they set me on the the trajectory mm -hmm. in terms of knowledge itself and 
eventually growing up and going to college, it was in college that I actually met my Leitner. So I got knowledge of self in an academic setting. Yeah, indeed. And I always give credit to Umala, uh, and then uh, also Dumar and then other guys and nurse who went and furthered their education because these were the predecessors or the people who took knowledge of self into these academic settings where it never existed before. Yeah, right, right. right. And, and my Leitner's and Leitner got knowledge in the academic setting back in the 70s, uh, like Justice. My Leitner's name is Raheem. And I was at Central State University in Wilberforce, Ohio, where I met my Leitner. So that is where I got formally introduced to knowledge itself in terms of 120 and mathematics and the alphabet. But even prior to that, and I'm talking about uh, born understanding or 93, okay. even prior to that, just being exposed to knowledge itself because of the social backdrop of the music that we were all exposed right. to, um, you know, during the, during that uh, golden years of uh, hip hop and really relating to a lot of the things that was being shared in the music but not necessarily knowing where it was actually derived from. And, you know, once I met my Leitner, you know, from there, I took that education further. And, you know, sometimes I hear some of the stories from uh, some of our elders and they talk about how when they were younger and they were getting knowledge of self and they brought it back home and they weren't eating pork anymore. And they talked about a lot of, a lot of uh, resistance that they faced with, within their families, as well as in their communities. I didn't have that type of experience per se, because my parents were already teaching me about right. who I was. Right. You know, and once I came home and started building with them about that perspective, they embraced it. You know, it was an adjustment because, you know, I got a righteous name now. Uh, and at the same time, they taught me ways to navigate some of these spaces, having that worldview of right. seeing myself as a true and living. You know, so so it was good to have that type of experience. And, you know, from there, I knowledge 120, September 30th, 1995. And from then, you know, I just been consistently building and growing and evolving. You know, another thing that is important to mention is various different people who got knowledge of self are exposed to it in different ways. And there are certain things about this culture that are attractive to different people. True. Like the, the high science of it, you know, people yeah. speaking in a language that is unfamiliar, that wasn't really attractive to me. Mm -hmm. It was me learning about the father and the type of work that he was doing within the communities. And that is what I've been consistently doing over the years because that's what resonated with me the most. Right. Uh, Old Earth, she was the director of the Niagara Community Center, which was the first Black institution that was established back in the 1920s here in my city of Niagara Falls. And not only was she actually involved in the growth and development of youth outside of her own family, but my old dad would do the same thing by employing youth who yeah. were me and my siblings' peers throughout the summertime because he was a painter by trade and he would hire us on jobs. I remember being knowledge, wisdom or 12 years old, yeah. being paid throughout the summer where I didn't have to ask my parents for school clothes or nothing right. like that. They were employing me. Right. Wow. My other siblings and some of our peers. So there are very different, very, very many things that they taught us that align with knowledge itself. So I didn't have to be convinced about a lot of things in terms of what the father was doing or what the 5% mm -hmm. represented it. I, I seen that already in my household. You know, as a side note, the father, he was assassinated on June 13th, and my old Earth's born day is June 13th. Wow, wow, wow. So, wow. so yeah, so, you know, it's, it's, it's been a beautiful journey, you know, and mm -hmm. Smiling all the damn time. Indeed, indeed, God, indeed, and like I said, man, before you, we we appreciate everything that you know you you shared with us along the way. Um, one quick question: We don't have to stay there too long. You said you went to Wilberforce, um, Central State University, and so, but I just recently. Uh, been made privy to some of that history of Central State and Wilberforce. And what is that rivalry like, man? Because uh, that history is kind of wild. I had never heard it before. 
Yeah, you know what? The community <laughs> itself is an older Black community. Mm-hmm. That's right there in Ohio. And it's also right in proximity to Yellow Springs, where Dave Chappelle is at. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one of the same type of stories that you oftentimes hear with religious institutions and how they were established. Right. And maybe a group of people who were some of the founders and they may have not liked the direction that this institution mm-hmm. was going in. So they started another one. Um, Central State is is like, when I was going there, it was more like Central State is like the, the hood or like the urban mm-hmm. aspect of our family. And mm-hmm. Wilberforce was more of the, the uppity, boozy yeah. <laughs> type of uh, family members. Gotcha. You know? <laughs> right across the street from each other, too. Right, right. Did, did, did they ever play each other in any uh, in sports or anything? No. Nah. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> now, that, that would have been that would have made for a, a, a dope rivalry. Um, but I wanted to uh, kind of build with you, you know, now um, just me being uh, new and as far as making my presence in the in the YouTube space, and you know, you have a lot of people who are doing so now um, in various degrees of uh, thought, and you know, people that have a good message and everything like that. But I remember you on there like for a long time ago, man, and um, before it was necessarily you know popular or the quote unquote thing to do. And I, I remember you know just peeping your videos and watching them. I think I'm going to say at least maybe even 10 years ago. Right. Um, and, you know, uh, just hearing your bills and and, you know, there were there were it was always dope to hear your perspective on, you know, different aspects of the lessons or the history. Um, what made you say even whenever, like I said, it wasn't popular. It wasn't necessarily the thing to do. What made you hop into that uh, YouTube space, uh, you know, 10, 11, 12 years ago uh, and, and you know, educate the people that way? Um, so prior to me even vlogging or doing videos, I was writing articles. So that goes back into like the Y2K time, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Those like late 90s. Mm-hmm. I was writing for a publication out in the UK. I was also writing articles for the 5% of newspaper from time to time. I would uh, send articles there. And I was writing also for publications locally and regionally. And my main focus was more social commentary. So, you know, as scientists of life, we're always studying something and, and and creatively, we need an outlet in order yes. to express that knowledge and wisdom so that we could share and impart that understanding. True. And I started out doing that first, like writing articles. And then eventually I created my own blog space back in like 2005. And to this day, I've still been consistently writing articles for that. I think I've written mm-hmm. over 350 something articles just on that space alone. Right. And through that, I eventually got involved in recording videos. And the reason that I even did it was to just document the things that I was actually doing. Mm. So it was never from the perspective of being like a talking head, mm-hmm. sharing my thoughts or ideas about things. It was directly related to something that I was actually doing. So a lot of my early videos, I'm in the vehicle all the time because I'm all transit. Right. Going to a program or going to a project or an initiative. And when I would have a thought in the midst of that, I would share it. Right. So throughout those years, I've been able to consistently create content because it was always based upon something that I'm actually doing. So I never run out of content. Right. Right. That is one of the, the things that I think a lot of people today don't realize that you have to really have a life that's worth living. Mm-hmm. That is authentic and that represents actionable items, things that you're literally doing. Mm-hmm. And through that, you can utilize your digital platform to document that work because if you're doing it that way, you would never have to chase, chase ambulances. You know, right. or you see people and over the last few years, you see a, a whole genre of reaction videos. Yep, yep. You know what I'm the, saying? That's like, that's the like most least creative uh, thing that you can do is create a video 
off of somebody else's video and I'm just reacting to it. But I see that a lot. Yeah, yeah. And 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 things like that have a sad birth record to it because mm -hmm. it's not a direct representation of how you're actually living. Right. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. um, I was thinking about this the other day and I, I mentioned it to you. You had posted something about a week ago and I commented and I said that if I look back at what I've, if I've looked back over, over some of the content I've created over the years, whether that's a project, a program, an initiative, a video, a book that I've written, an album that I've created, or any of those things mm -hmm. that are tangible, mm -hmm. I could literally share some project, program, or initiative every day for the next five years. Wow, right, right without ever repeating anything throughout a seven-day period. And that's a lot of work. That's a lot of work. You know what I'm saying? And, and I wouldn't be able to do that mm -hmm. if it wasn't something that I was actually living each and every day. Right. You know? so, right. So when I entered this digital space, it was just only to, to document things that I was doing and to share it with others so that others can utilize this in a practical way and implement it in the various different locations where they are. Right. And over the years of creating that space, I also got a lot of opportunities to collaborate with various different people or organizations or businesses mm -hmm. and became somewhat of a subject matter expert related to the 5%. So if there's like any kind of national or international news that's related to the 5%, the national or international press reaches out to me, I'm one of the primary contacts just by virtue of the digital footprint that I've created over the years. And that's nothing I never set out to do or the, a goal. That's some shit that I've had to just accept and deal with. <laughs> right. A lot of people don't realize the, the level of expectation that comes along with that responsibility. Mm -hmm. So I teach sixth grade right now. Um, I also help and support a second grade class um, at an elementary school. And I do that every day. Right. Um, in the middle of the day, I could get an email from New York State asking me for content for something. And I, I may need to get it to them within the next 72 hours. Right. You know what I'm saying? So I'm constantly getting like. Yeah, that's a lot of pressure. Like <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah. so that. You know, so creating that 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 digital space. One thing that I always encourage people to do is, if you're going to start doing um, videos or if you're going to start writing articles or something like that, you have to be clear on the amount of time that you're willing to allocate to doing something like that. Right. So like I started writing articles back in 2005 on my own space. I was writing articles before that, but when I got to 2005 and I said I wanted to create my own space and to write articles consistently. I knew at that time that I could commit to publishing at least two articles a month. Mm -hmm. And I've been able to consistently do that from 2005 all the way to wow. today. Wow. You know what I'm saying? Because I was, I was honest about my time and consistent about it. You know, a lot of times people run into stuff and they really don't think about it. Like, yo, you're going to be doing this in the next five years. Right, right. So plan ahead. And that's how you build your audience. And it's just like with any type of program that you see on television. You know, if if something that's really good, because a lot of people have a lot of great ideas. Mm -hmm. If it comes on at eight o'clock on Wednesday evening, <laughs> it needs to come on at eight o'clock exactly. next Wednesday, too, because... Exactly. You mess around and it be spotty and all this other stuff, you're going to lose your audience and frustrate people too. Mm -hmm. Some people, you know, they won't even tune in because they're like, damn, I don't know when they're going to do something else. And this was real great. Right. They're not going, you know? Right. No, that's that's real, God, because it's, it's uh, you have to have, uh, first off, you, it's definitely like a second job. It can be, you know what I'm saying? Um, <laughs> you, you have to put in, you know, the time, um, whether you're editing your stuff and, you know, it's just a lot that goes into it. Also, you're right. Consistency is one of the most important things because if, like, like you said, if it comes out Wednesday, 
people are on at eight o'clock. People are going to expect it to come out on Wednesday at eight o'clock, every Wednesday at eight o'clock, right? And so, regardless to what you may have going on in your personal life or if you or at your job, you still have to make time and commit that time in order to give that uh, your other job, you know, some. Uh, uh, that time that it needs in order for you to be able to keep putting out, um, keep putting out videos. And um, speaking of uh, videos, you were recently in a documentary hosted by Samuel L. Jackson uh, called Enslaved, man. Um, really, really dope. Um, if you can kind of build, or like, how did, how did you even get that spot? And what are some of the things that you learned during that whole process and, and everything like that? Yes, Chief. So, so I'm uh, I'm gonna share this too about the work that you've been doing as well in terms of creating uh, this space for mm -hmm. people to be able to share a variety of different voices related to the science of everything in life. Right. The more you consistently do this, the more you create that digital footprint where you become a subject matter expert in this area of expertise or mm -hmm. this niche that mm -hmm. others are not an uh, a, a, an expert in mm -hmm. and people who are connected to various different companies or institutions or or other different organizations search for people who are subject matter experts in specific niches because wow. you know that is a person that has value in terms of what they're actually doing mm -hmm. and because i started to do you know this type of work digitally for a while um, the, one of the first opportunities that I had was back in like the, maybe the mid 2000s or something like that. I worked as a, a program consultant for the History Channel uh, <laughs> series, uh, Gangland, and they were doing a, a, a episode on a gang called the Hidden Valley Kings, mm -hmm. in Charlotte, North Carolina. And they okay. reached out to me through YouTube because they saw my content. Wow. And brought wow. me in just based upon being a subject matter expert in that capacity. Right. So over the years, I've had many other different opportunities. I've worked as a consultant for different celebrities and stuff. And it's like non-disclosure agreement yeah. that I, I signed <laughs> with them and stuff. But it's funny as hell because there's been times where it'll be a celebrity on television or something uh -huh. <laughs> saying or issuing a, a, a public statement that I wrote for them right. <laughs> right, right. like hours ago. Wow. And be sitting right next to me, just sitting there listening to it. And I won't say shit. I just look at it. Yeah. But I've gotten those type of opportunities. And, you know, also because of my, my uh, lineage, I'm connected mm -hmm. to Josiah Henson, who was a forerunner of the Underground Railroad. Definitely. And he is the model that, Harriet Beecher Stowe used for her famous novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, mm -hmm. because that is a part of my ancestry. That is also something that people seek out to learn more about and to connect me to some of their projects. And the Enslaved docuseries is one of those opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, I also worked um, on another uh, IMAX film called Into America's Wild that's narrated by Morgan Freeman. And they, what is that about? They, um, it's about different uh, paths or journeys of people around the United States. So because it's an IMAX film, mm -hmm. it, it showcases like large screen imagery of various different places and landscapes mm -hmm. of this country. So there were two indigenous people who were the, the hosts, Ariel Tweedo mm -hmm. and John Harrington, who was the first indigenous person who was a, a astronaut. And wow. They host this IMAX film and they came here to my city. And, you know, I taught them about some of the, the history of the Underground Railroad here in my city. Mm -hmm. So, and then also my after school program, I got them incorporated into the project as well. And they paid them to be on film. And oh. that was that was dope for them to experience that the first time in their life, you know? Yeah. yeah. Real uh, dope. So opportunities like that just started to come based upon the things that they see me doing. Now, keep in mind, everything that I'm sharing is based upon things that I'm actually doing. So I'm not just talking. Mm -hmm. These are things that you can go on research. If I talk about how I'm a human rights commissioner here in my city, you can contact my city hall. <laughs> and find out. Right. I'm a, a human rights commissioner here and what time we meet 
mm-hmm. monthly so that you could attend the meeting. Right. You know, with us, me, and my other human rights commissioners. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. so when when companies, especially and institutions want to create projects or programs and initiatives, if they want it to be authentic and genuine, they make sure that they bring people in who are authentic and genuine, who check out if they did any kind of background research and, and things along those lines, because you also add value. Right. Projects, you know, so um, the production company is out of Toronto and they contacted me personally about being a part of the enslaved docuseries and and one thing that i learned as well with just being in different industries whether it's the film industry whether it's uh television or whether it's uh music any of these industries you have to be prepared you ain't yeah. got time to be <laughs> let me get myself together and all this other stuff you know right right times where uh, an organization to reach out to me about being the keynote speaker for an event a week from now about a subject that I may not be the the most experienced in, which means I have a whole week to prepare myself for the speaking event. Right. If I accept it. Right. So I don't got time to be like, oh my God, like I I don't know and all this other stuff. You gotta be ready. You know what I'm saying? So with this slave docuseries, um, the, uh, it's based upon a team of, marine archaeologists uh an organization called diving with a purpose who are a black organization out of florida who primarily teaches black children about marine archaeology because that's something that we traditionally don't really have access to mm-hmm. as a people so mm-hmm. you know, they focus on that and then for years they've been documenting um, sunken ships particularly those ships that are associated with the transatlantic slave trade right. as the Underground Railroad. So mm-hmm. the production company, uh, Simka Jehovovich, this is a guy who's an award-winning award director. Um, he brought in Samuel L. Jackson, and this is actually the first project that Samuel L. Jackson in his entire acting career has actually executive produced. Wow. In wow. his whole career, this is the first project that he's actually put his name on in that capacity. So that's wow. how connected he was to one yeah. to do a project like this, you know? Right. So when he contacted me, you know, when you're dealing with like film productions or television series, there's a lot of moving parts and you have to be prepared, you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? So they were going to film here in Western New York originally, but a week before, um, during the research that they were doing, the ship that they were documenting never arrived here to Lake Erie. Mm-hmm. It actually went to another location. So they contacted me and it was like, uh, uh, are you comfortable? We're going to have to fly you out to film in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. And it's like, <laughs> no, Sheboygan. Right, right. <laughs> I've heard of that shit in my life. You know right. what I mean? So I'm like, okay, I just got to make adjustments because I was teaching preschool at that time. Mm-hmm. And that week, I've been preparing my students for like our our final event. You know, mm-hmm. we were having like a, a ceremony and stuff mm-hmm. for their moving up day and graduation. So we were working on that all week. And I'm like, damn, okay, I got to get out of town and, and go film and shit. So, so they flew me out like right after school one day. Mm-hmm. And I get to, I flew out of, flew out of here i went to chicago then i was i was uh, they drove me a car came pick me up and i went from there to wisconsin to sheboygan i i didn't get there till probably like around midnight or something like that and i had to be up at like 5 36 in the morning to eat to mm-hmm. meet the film crew so that wow. i could be out on a damn dive boat which i've never been on before wow. mm-hmm. and <laughs> and the dive boat we had to ride it like a an hour and a half out into the middle of Lake Michigan <laughs> to, for the scuba divers to dive, I think, of, uh, over a thousand feet. Yeah, that's crazy. You know what I'm saying? So right. I had to be prepared for that. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. and, you know, I was prepared for it. And, and that was kind of like a, an experience that was surreal because, you know, I'm in this place, I'm meeting the crew for the first time. Mm-hmm. You know, and in terms of knowledge itself, 
we say that we're lords of all worlds. Right. And that can be very theoretical for a lot of us. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? We don't necessarily <laughs> put ourselves in those different places. Right. This comfort where we really got to be the true and living in this boardroom around these white folks. Right. Like the same confidence and, you know, fire and shit like that mm-hmm. in that environment. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Or if you're working with young children, I know that some of us want to speak cryptic and high science and archaic and shit, but can you break that shit down for a preschooler? Right. Make it practical. Make it uh, easy to, easily digestible, you know? Yeah, yeah. Or if your your great grandmother's receiving a, an award at the church and you're invited there, do you know how to navigate a space like that, maintaining your integrity by celebrating your great grandmother at the same time? Right. You know? And a lot of us may not put ourselves in those kind of environments. And that's one thing that that I enjoy doing in terms of experiencing new places as like a, a forerunner mm-hmm. and there's no people like, yo, you can, you know, you can be in this space and still be who you are. Right. Yeah. I, and I think God, I think a lot of times too, as like, even with my, and speaking for self, you know, there's times where, you know, you might have an opportunity to do something and you've never done it before. It can make you somewhat uncomfortable. You know what I mean? But the thing about it is, if you go do it, you it's, at the end, you're always like, ah, oh, man, that's not even as bad as what I thought it was going to be. Right. Yeah, yeah. And then you, you you get something out of it, man. And like you never we can never let fear dictate our decisions and our choices when it comes to you know expanding our universe and having these because you know even with when it comes to the seeds and the the babies we want them to have as much experiences that they can while they're little you know what i mean so by the time by the time they get older it's nothing you know what i'm saying like oh what you going to do i'm going i'm going skydiving or something you know just whatever they're into right like but you never want them to feel like because i've known god i know people that um have never even really been out of the city that they live in you know and so i can only imagine the type of fear that would be induced if they were um given a certain opportunity to go do something else that is totally foreign and totally new you know what i mean and uh that's a that's a real thing yeah, yo, gee, I, I had an experience like maybe a couple of years ago, pre-pandemic and everything. Mm-hmm. And I took this young brother across the border with me in Canada. Mm-hmm. And we went to this aerial obstacle course. Oh, they, wow. had three, they had three different courses. Mm-hmm. They had like the child's course. They had like the intermediate. And then they had like the expert joint. <laughs> so he's, he's 12 years old. So he ain't got no fear about no shit. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> so over there, I don't even really look at the courses like that. So we go inside the spot mm-hmm. and the dude is asking us like, yo, so which course you want to take? He's like, yo, we just going to do the expert course. <laughs> he's like, all right. Yeah, whatever. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. So he take us to the, the little, um, it's like a short training that they put you through mm-hmm. in terms of like the harness that you're wearing that's connected to it and all of this other stuff. And then after we go through the training, they take us over to the to the expert course. Now, the expert course, you go inside of the building to the roof of the building, climb up a damn ladder, <laughs> get on a, a pedestal, right? zip line over to the expert wow. course across <laughs> the street. Right, but right. <laughs> now, I live in Niagara Falls, which is right on the border of the Niagara River. Mm-hmm. This aerial obstacle course is right on the escarpment on the Canadian side. So while you're on top of it, which is over two stories high now, mm-hmm. you can look down over the edge mm-hmm. so all the way down to where the Niagara River is. Wow. 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 Right, right. So it took me about 20 minutes just to get on the damn course. <laughs> right, Dude, right. Just going through it and shit like Spider-Man. Yeah. Right, right. So, and I'm talking about you're up over two stories, you know what I'm saying? And it's mm-hmm. a harness connecting you to a, a rope that goes throughout the whole course. Right. But they have like areas where there are like a rope and two, one rope above you, mm-hmm. only one rope beneath you, and you have to balance across the rope from oh, one wow. pedestal to the next. Wow. And you're up that high. Wow. It took me about 
It took me about two hours to finish that damn course. Are you serious? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yo, yo, because, yo, mm-hmm. you have to trust the equipment. Right, right. There's no other That's hard way. to do, though, right? You have to. Yeah, yeah. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. And he just went through it or whatever, but once he got through, I'm still getting through it and, and all of this other stuff. He's down, way down on the ground. Like, he's encouraging me. Right, like, come on, you know what I'm saying? Right, right. Like, Yo, that's that's my lightning right there. Yeah, <laughs> really challenged me to be able to get over that that fear. Yeah, of trusting mm-hmm. that equipment. You know right. what I'm saying? Like the height and all that stuff. It, that wasn't as fearful for me, but it was just, yo, I, you got to believe in this equipment. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. Right. You think it's faulty? You ain't gonna do nothing. Nah, you know? not at all. So you know, a lot of times. Like you're saying, once you go through that experience, you see, you know, especially if you see others that go through it. He's 12 years old, just right. zipping through it like it ain't nothing. Right. And so I had the evidence in front of me, you know. So a lot of times we serve the same purpose as that 12 year old mm. for others. Mm. You know what I'm saying? No doubt. No doubt. That's deep, God. That's deep. And you touched you. Uh, we don't have to stay here long, but I definitely would like to touch on some of the history of. Niagara Falls and the Underground Railroad. Um, yeah. What, what uh, so like whenever you were just kind of studying that subject and, you know, and, and, and going out in the fields, like what kind of things did you learn? You know, because I have a few books on the Underground Railroad and, you know, as a kid, right? Like um, as a kid, when we studied it, you, you know, it or at least it, when it was taught to us, you're like, damn, was it really a rare, was it really a, you know, but, you know, whenever you study it and you realize that it was a, it was, it was, you know, houses, churches, um, different hideout spots, and, and it was somewhat functioned like a secret society, right, mm-hmm. um, and the level of, uh, the the way that they had to come together to to you know make this thing go without being caught and the and the amount of people that it would involve like i just find that you know pretty pretty fascinating and also a testament to what we can do whenever we um come together for one common cause right mm-hmm. um and so what did you uh so what did you learn god and and if you can just share some of that with us yeah, so so that network of freedom is something to study in terms of the type of network of freedom that's still necessary today. Mm. But you still have a lot of freedom seekers today mm-hmm. require that type of support in order for them to self-actualize and to walk and live into their purpose, right? Right. Niagara Falls is one of the last stops along that journey, the Underground Railroad from the south to the north, um, Niagara Falls, Buffalo, New York, Lewiston, New York, any of these border cities, Detroit, to the Canadian side, because Canada was considered Canaan land or the free land at one particular point. Mm. When the Fugitive Slave Act was passed in 1850, we mm. started to see an exodus of our people striving to escape the United States in order to get to freedom on the Canadian side. Mm. Um, one of the only ways, aside from catching rowboats or steamships to get across to Canada was right here in the city of Niagara Falls where the first suspension bridge was constructed that allowed people passage from the United States over to Canada. That bridge was first constructed in 1846, but it was fully completed by 1855. So imagine that you had a, a transportation boom because you also had the New York Central Railroad that connected all of the railroads throughout New York State, mm-hmm. which funneled people all the way here to this particular point in the city of Niagara Falls. So in terms of people of African descent, it wasn't uncommon to see us living here in small numbers, right? while well as working here in the city of Niagara Falls, as well as right over on the Canadian side. Harriet Tubman literally crossed through this area on that suspension bridge Wow. December of 1856, one year after that bridge was constructed. So you had many people coming this way. Mm-hmm. Um, Josiah Henson, he crossed in 1830 in Buffalo, New York, which is about 20 miles from where I live at here in the city of Niagara Falls. Um, wow. And when he crossed, he lived in a small community called Little Africa, 
mm-hmm. in Fort Erie, Ontario, Canada, and then eventually moved further north and founded a settlement called the Dawn Settlement, which consisted of originally 186 freedom seekers that lived there. Um, wow. So it was some generations after that, that my grandmother, Inez Dorsey, was born through his family. And she lived in St. Catharines, which is the same community Harriet Tubman and mm-hmm. other freedom seekers settled in. And she moved here in the United States in 1925. So I knew that story and that journey as a child. So it was common knowledge to me in terms of our role within the Underground Railroad. Mm-hmm. But as I got older, I began to get more interested and to learn a lot more, not only about the Underground Railroad as a whole, but the critical role that our people play right mm-hmm. here in Western New York. So um, you had um, some of the most sophisticated networks of the Underground Railroad that existed here because here in this city, there weren't a lot of safe houses and people right. hiding out. It was much more open because once you arrive here, you can literally look and see your freedom on the Canadian side. Right, right. And it doesn't mean that some of the people who are classified as white were all abolitionist mindset. No, nah, you have people who also were pro-slavery that lived here. And because you have freedom seekers arriving here to get to Canada, you had also bounty hunters and federal marshals who were arriving here as well. In order mm. to capture people. Mm-hmm. So it's a real rich history in terms of the Underground Railroad here. And I was also instrumental in helping establish the Niagara Falls Underground Railroad Heritage Center that's here in the city. Oh. I was one of over 300 people that were a part of that project to get that oh. institution established. And I also give tours and do speaking engagements related to the Underground Railroad um, through that institution. Yeah, God, whenever I get out that way, that's one of the that's definitely one of the places I'm going. You know, I'm a I'm a history buff. And just to be around that, you know, the, I mean, I it's, it seems like that's kind of like a an indescribable feeling just to be there, you know, like to to cross the bridge that, you know, Harriet Tubman crossed, you know, like um, and for you uh, being um, related to uh, the great Josiah Henson. Um, and knowing what your family was involved in as far as on the Underground Railroad and things like that, I know that has to be, well, a source of, or gives you a sense of pride, right? Just to know, like, this is, I come from a a long family of this, right? Um, And for people that don't know much about Josiah Henson, I feel like, the great Josiah Henson isn't talked about enough in history. We know about the Uncle Tom character in, um, you know, Harriet Beecher Stowe's book and all of that stuff, but people don't really, in my opinion or in my estimation, um, don't really know who Josiah Henson was in his, in his totality, right? Um, if you can, just give us um, you know, uh, a brief history on on who Josiah Henson was and and why he was so important. Yeah, well, um, like I mentioned, he was a he was a forerunner of the Underground Railroad, and to kind of put that in context, as a forerunner, when you talk about the Underground Railroad, that took years to establish as a network, and it didn't become a popular phrase until you're getting into the 19th, I mean, parcel, you get into like the 1850s. Mm -hmm. Um, He crossed into Canada in 1830. So he was literally a part of the people who were constructing that network. Right. Harriet Tubman, her name was Araminta at that time. She was still a child Mm -hmm. living on the plantation when he made that journey at the age of 41 with his four small children and his wife. Wow. Um, Um, Another thing that a lot of times people don't talk about with the Underground Railroad is people like to share these white savior stories. Right. And don't focus on the fact that many of our people emancipated ourselves and helped emancipate each other. Yes. That's one of the stories that is unique here in my city, that the majority of the stories of freedom seekers that crossed here emancipated themselves. 
mm. by either walking across the suspension bridge or rowing themselves across in a boat or a brother by the name of Oliver Purnell actually swam across. Wow. Wow. To them on the Canadian side. And wow. you know, there is this, this history of self-emancipation that a lot of times people don't talk about when it comes to the Underground Railroad. Mm-hmm. Um, Josiah Henson, eventually, like I mentioned, he established the Dawn Settlement. He also was instrumental in building the British American Institute. Wow. He had a Black militia in the rebellion of 1837. He did everything that you would never expect no Uncle Tom to do. Right. <laughs> right. And it was some years after that, uh, Harry Beecher Stowe got access to his biography and she eventually met Josiah Henson when he came back into the United States because he would also come back and forth in the role of an abolitionist mm-hmm. where she sat down and talked to him and she used elements of his life for her book Uncle Tom's Cabin and when she put that book out there was a, a, a big backlash mm-hmm. um, it was a best-selling novel of the 19th century and especially a lot of people in the South, they didn't like how they were depicted in terms of enslavement. Right. And tried to say that she was making stuff up. It wasn't accurate. There was no basis for what she was writing. And they also began to put out counter narratives. And that's where you get this Uncle Tom caricature from. Wow. The narratives that were written after she published this book. Right. They also had people who were doing plays that were based upon Harry Beecher Stowe's book and changing the content of the play. Um, mm-hmm. Copyright laws weren't what they are today during that time. So people were just doing whatever they wanted. Right. Um, published that book. She wrote a second book called The Key to Uncle Tom's Cabin. And it is in that book that she mentions Josiah Henson by name. Mm-hmm. And he was one of the, the primary resources that she used um, for her book. And so when, so in the second book, I haven't heard much about the second book. So in the second one is like, is she trying to clean up what she was doing in the first one or is she just doubling down? No, it's, it's more like a reference book. Okay. Okay. She just publishes like her references and, and information about her research. Okay. And how she even wrote the book. Yeah. It's actually the key. And, you know, like a, there's a reason a lot of people don't even talk about that book because it does clarify a lot of the things that that she wrote in her initial book. Yeah, because I was, you know, I, I remember an elder one time, I think I had used the phrase Uncle Tom around him. He was like, he was like, Uncle Tom ain't who you think it is. You know what I'm saying? And then that's what kind of made me research uh, that more and obviously came across Josiah Henson. And uh, yeah. recently I've... Uh, I think there's a couple of new books on them uh, that I wanted to uh, get as well. You may have them. I forgot the name of them. And just to kind of add on to your point about um, what the climate was like uh, in New York, as you know, whether on the Underground Railroad or not, everybody, like you said, everybody, every, every white person wasn't an abolitionist. And they even had pro-South newspapers in New York at that time, and I believe the New York Herald was, was one of them, where they were extremely sympathetic to the South, extremely pro-slavery. So just because you got to New York doesn't mean that, hey, we're in the clear now, we're safe, because yeah, that it, it wasn't like that. Yeah, slave, slavery was abolished in New York State in 1827. Mm. So a lot of times people think, oh, just slavery was in the South. No. Right, right, right. Here too. right. Right. (laughs) Um, I kind of, you know, wanted to just kind of build on this a little bit. Um, You know, uh, being a five percenter, um, you know, people that, you know, like like with the show, I have I've had people from all different types of schools of thought, um, MCs, authors, activists. And, you know, uh, for the most part, um, it's. It's all about just kind of uh, understanding their story, and and um, and and it's not a. I don't I don't use the platform to critique anybody's ideology, right? Uh, it's um, 
I mean, there's other, there's plenty of platforms that do that, right? And so like, like, it's like, if you need that, you could, there's plenty of spaces you can go, right? But um, being a 5% and obviously you're a 5% as well, um, you know, we have uh, degrees that involve uh, Jesus, Muhammad, and Yaqub, and, you know, some opponents to what we teach uh, may uh use that to say, you know, we propagate myths, right? Um, and I argue that they don't know or understand how we see those lessons, right? And with that said, in your eyes, does it matter if Jesus, Muhammad, or Yaqub actually existed when it comes to drawing up the lessons for your own uh, personal benefit and understanding for your own life? Yeah, I, I think... Um... So the, the way that I teach is I examine the degrees from a historical perspective, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. in terms of is there some evidence to support that this was an actual historical event? Mm -hmm. Whether it is or isn't, what is the practical application? What did we learn from this lesson? Because right. that's what it is. It's a lesson. Right. What are you learning from it? And how could you actually apply it to your life? Now, if a person misses the lesson, <laughs> the irony of that is you're obviously not learning anything right which means you totally missed the point mm. of why this information is even available to you mm -hmm. um so i don't argue or go back and forth with people about whether jesus existed or not or whatever blah 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 blah, blah. i'd rather speak about okay so whether this person existed or not um do you see a benefit in <laughs> some of the things that are ascribed to this person? Right. Do you see a benefit in that? Is this something that, that you think that you could apply to your life? In the story it, in itself. Yeah, you know? So it's, it's all about, to me, it's, it's what is, how does it function? I always ask myself that question. How does it function? How does it work? How does it apply? Right. You know? Mm -hmm. And I, I, I agree, right? Um, I know brothers, like I said, and you know, I, I honestly too, that allows you to, you know, communicate with, you know, let's say a, a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or somebody of a, a, you know, outside of the Abrahamic faith, whenever you're able to see the lesson in what they teach, right? Instead of automatically going into the, uh, to the mind frame of, hey, I'm going to try to disassemble what they teach and prove that it's not, it didn't really happen. But like you said, what did I learn in that process of doing that? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I didn't really learn anything. Um, and, I and I possibly, you know, burned the bridge with whoever I was um, dealing with. But whenever we're able to communicate um on let's say like let's just talk about like the the story of Jesus or you know some say Yeshua if I say you know this is what I learned from from reading that story uh you know I, you know as far as him being a revolutionary in his time um and how he went up against the state how he these were his principles um you know some of the stuff that they attribute him saying and I'm saying yo this is what I got from that you know this is why I'm better for it um, you're able to communicate with people who are in the, who are dealing in that paradigm on a much deeper level, a much more personal level, a much more respectful level, where you can go away where they might say, yo, he's that guy, Rakeem, he's a five percenter. I don't really know what they, you know, but I know he respects the, this story and I would, I'll invite him to, uh, you know, a function that we have, you know, that kind of thing. Indeed. And, and, and to add on to what you're saying, that perspective itself is steeped in the tradition of our liberation theology that enabled us to create our resistance movements on these plantations Indeed. and throughout the civil rights movement in order to gain and access levels of power as well as freedom. Yep. You know? And without that perspective, you know, we wouldn't have had these resistance movements or we wouldn't have had an underground railroad or these other things in terms of being able to draw from those stories biblically and apply them to ourselves. Right. You know? Look, they called Harriet Mo uh, Moses, you know, and wade in the water and all. See, like, yeah. I, I was building on that. Um, I think you might have saw the, I think I posted it, um, where people don't realize the origins or a lot of the early, early Black um, 
uh, you know, gospel songs that we used to sing um, were steeped in freedom and <laughs> obtaining your freedom, not in a mystical sense. I'm like physically getting free. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And if you and with you have, uh, you know, long studies in, in the Underground Railroad and like you said, how one of the brothers uh, swam uh through the through the niagara and you know you have the song wade in the water and and they were singing this right and and um you know out in the fields they have it they're having these these uh shout songs where it sounds like they're just you know praising the lord but they're planning some shit right or they're yeah. plotting you know what i'm saying and yeah. that kind of gives you a whole different appreciation just for the foundation of the black church. See, I, I used to be one that banged on the church real hard, right? But I think that was my own ignorance because the more that I have studied the origin of the black church, not saying what it is now, right? Um, but at, at least in its origin, um, the foundation of the black church isn't solely a Christian foundation, right? There are a lot of, um, uh, there are a lot of, leftovers from African traditional religions that we brought from Native American understandings of plants and, and you know, botany life uh, and the environment that we lived in. And so with that, and also like you, we were building on as far as some of the songs that they sang were really based upon, uh, you know, being free and, you know, Harriet being nicknamed Moses, like it just gives you a whole new perspective on the origin of, uh, you know, the black church in America. Yeah. And, and when you look at like our settlements, whether they were in the South, whether they were settlements on the Canadian side, aside from a sawmill mm. that enabled us to build more structures, mm. the church was one of the first institutions that we established because it allowed us a gathering space that enabled us to further reinforce the principles and values that we were learning in our household Excellent. when connect us to the larger community. So you Excellent. always have to give credit and respect to our predecessors for being able to utilize the knowledge that they had at that time in order to establish these type of institutions. And to disrespect that is really to disrespect our our, our origins. Yeah, you exactly, God. And, you know, another thing, too, like in the 60s, um, during the times of the uh, civil rights movement, and you had these church bombings, right? So people looked at that um, without understanding the context of a lot of these church bombings. They weren't necessarily just bombing churches. They were bombing centers where we gathered together to plan what we were doing next. You know what I mean? This is where when you know, Dr. King and uh, Fred Shuttlesworth and all these other people that were uh, especially, you know, down with the uh, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, where they would plan the next moves of the civil rights movement. And that's what they were bombing, not just religious institutions, but community institutions that were there for organizing. Yeah, absolutely. You know what I'm saying? Well, God... Well, uh, one one last thing before we uh, wrap everything up, I want to say I definitely appreciate you for coming through, God. Um, it's yeah, been a, a a great build, a great build. Um, for uh, those uh, who aren't necessarily uh, familiar with all of the work that you got going on, um, what is the Atlanta Atlantis School for Gifted Children or gift? Was it gifted youth? I apologize. Yeah, yeah, gee, so. So over the years, the various different work that I've done in terms of as a writer or an uh, author, a, a creative uh, community organizer, all of these various different things, I've usually had to do it independently in public spaces or I've collaborated with different organizations or institutions or I've worked in different organizations or institutions and the Atlantis School for Gifted Youngsters is really a culmination of all of the work that I've been doing over the years because I realized that I have to have a, a central location, which is a brick and mortar institution, mm -hmm. that I'm able to do all of the things that I've been doing over the years. And the basis of it is an early childhood learning center, as well as an after school program. So I acquired a property a couple of years ago 
and I've been renovating it into mm -hmm. that early childhood learning center and after school program for youth ages nine to 12. And it's gonna operate as a cooperative. Mm -hmm. And the reason I call it the Atlanta School for Gifted Youngsters is because it's based upon the Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters. Right. <laughs> and people who are familiar with the X-Men, they're also familiar that Professor Xavier created this safe space mm -hmm. that enabled some of the elder mutants Mm -hmm. to teach the younger mutants on how to develop and control their powers. Right. So the same type of basis is the way that I'm going to be operating my Atlanta School for Gifted Youngsters. It's a non-for-profit organization registered with the state of New York. And through my network of various different people who have various different skill sets, they're going to serve as these elder mutants who are able <laughs> to successfully add on and teach the younger mutants and i've been documenting it every step of the way and mm -hmm. the purpose of that also is to show people the possibility of doing something like this as a community school mm. that enables us to be able to teach some of the things that children may not be learning in a public school or private school or a charter right. school right so for example um i have a sister that is a vegan chef mm. And I don't know any schools that offer <laughs> programs with holistic health and teaching. I don't either. Care, you know, mm. light meals in terms of promoting vegan health. And so she would come and add on in that capacity, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. So like I said, my, my goal with this school is to model it so that others can look at that and say, you know what? We need to set up something like this in our city or our community yeah. that we can offer it to our youth as well. And I rarely, if ever, complain about the things that I see that's going on around me because I'm always trying to figure out what is a solution in order to address that issue that I see. You mm -hmm. know, and one thing I tell people all of the time: if if you see the absence of something, that is your evidence of opportunity. Mm. You have to figure out a way to actually build and construct something and align yourself with those who advocate for the same type of common cause. Right. So this has been like one of the, the um, like the, the biggest undertakings that I've been involved in over the years mm. um, recently. And right now I'm in the final phase of the renovation. I'm laying down flooring and doing board baseboards. No. And up until this point, I've, I've, you know, I've gotten a lot of support through a GoFundMe that I put online. And the only reason I put that up is because through the work that I do, I've had people reaching out to me from around the world asking how can they support help. what I'm doing. Right. And I'm usually the person like, yo, I'm going to do this regardless. <laughs> right. I'm Whether somebody adds on or not, I'm going to do it. That's my determined idea, mm -hmm. you know. But mm -hmm. I had to sit and think about it like, man, I have people who genuinely want to support the work that they see me doing. So. Let me just create this opportunity for people to support. And they've been able to support me, you know, but outside of that, I've financed every single thing that I've been doing from getting a new roof done, on windows, I re-drywalled the whole first and second floor. I got a new water heater, a new uh, furnace, um, new piping. I've done like, you know, mm -hmm. I have a, a general contractor, but I help my general contractor. Um, oh, you help you actually help him do some of the work? Yeah, with certain things that he's teaching me how to do. Mm -hmm. you no. Know? Mm -hmm. But um, but yeah, it's been and the beautiful thing about that too is um, him along with a few others who have been a part of the renovation project throughout the shutdown and the things that's been going on, I've been able to successfully employ people throughout that time that are local. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's important to me as well. Yeah, I'm you know, making sure that just the institution is is community based in all of its aspects right yeah so. right well that's well that's extremely dope god and we you know we all appreciate your works and your efforts i know a lot of times um you know people don't necessarily get all of their flowers like they like they should man but you know yeah. i oh, here this way man i like to just you know 
the people who are actually doing great things, who are inspiring us to do great things, man, I like to just let them know that we appreciate what they're doing. We're, we're constantly being inspired by it. You're definitely one of those people, God, and I, I definitely appreciate it. It's been an honor for you, to, to for me to have you on here. You know what I'm saying? So I appreciate that, God. Yeah, I think I think thank you as well, G, and the work that you're doing in terms of providing this this type of space for us. That's not ratchet. <laughs> right. That ain't no gossip back and forth bullshit. That's right. really giving people an opportunity to not just watch this, but to go back and to do further research on the things that people are actually mentioning. Indeed. You know, you're really creating uh, a digital reference library mm. you know what i'm saying indeed God. and you know especially my brother uh from uh, philly malik that was on here oh yeah yeah uh, <laughs> he was mentioning so many damn books i know i, I people been I asking me about that book list <laughs> no i had to keep pausing it to jot down <laughs> notes the whole time but that's that's the way that that this type of research resource uh should be used by mm-hmm. by the, the watching audience you know what i'm saying that this is really about actual growth and development. You know what I mean? Indeed. God, well, I appreciate that, God. I know you got a lot going on and you have some other engagements today, but I definitely appreciate you stopping by, God, and uh, you have a good one. I appreciate you too, God. Peace. Peace.